0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Good evening, Uh, my name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the architecture curator uh, here at the Royal Academy of Arts. Welcome to the third event of the Designing Urban Identity series. We are exploring how the character of the urban fabric of London uh, varies uh, across the city and is defined by the also varying economic, political and social uh, factor and most importantly how this has an impact on the architecture designing for some of the most uh, relevant upcoming developments taking place in these different areas of London and how they shape the character of the, of the city and the citizens. Uh, in the first and second event we uh, focus on East and West London and um, this time, in uh, this third event, coinciding with the London Festival of Architecture, uh, we have invited an incredible selection of thinkers and critics to explore how the identity of London is safe and, and to respond to the many pressing issues as a global capital and how is it reflected in uh, the architectural language of, the, of London. To present these, uh, you in further detail today's event, uh, uh, it's my real pleasure to, um, to introduce to our chair this evening Ben Rogers is director of the Centre for London, writer and policy thinker. Uh, with a particular focus on cities, citizenship, social capital, public service reform, and the built environment. Prior to founding the Centre for London in 2011, Ben was uh, an Associate Director of the Institute for Public Policy Research and uh, has subsequently led uh, strategy teams in Haringey Council, Department for Communities and Local Government, and the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit.
2: Thank you, Gonzalo, and thank you to the uh, Royal Academy for inviting me to chair um, I think this is very sort of timely and... Uh, Rich event um, with a, a great panelists. Uh, I'll introduce the panelists in a moment. I'll just sort of set the scene by saying that I've lived in London all my life, and uh, it seems to me the city's been on an absolutely extraordinary journey. Uh, I look back into the London of my childhood in the 1960s and 70s, and I must say I don't feel a great deal of nostalgia for it. I feel a huge nostalgia for the countryside of my childhood. Um, which I think has sort of probably uh, changed in a way that I don't um, appreciate. But I, London, I, even though I lived through London in the in, in the 16th, 17th, I still see it in black and white. Um, uh, and the food was bad, and everyone sat down for tea at, 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 at five, and it seemed to me a place which didn't have, um, which, was, which had sort of resigned itself to a sort of gentle decline. Uh, and then something extraordinary began to happen, uh, I guess in the in the, in, in the 1990s, and the city, I think, sort of took off and rediscovered its global identity. Of course, it had always been a global city, and one of the things that's striking about London is actually it's probably been a global city longer than any other city uh, on the planet, with perhaps the exception of uh, of Tokyo. But it sort of went through this extraordinary um, uh, uh, period of, of globalisation, and 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 still is. And really, as if is as if every single person in the world wanted a bit of the London action. And that was true whether you were a poor um, Eastern European uh, worker, or a um, Russian billionaire, or an investor from uh, Tokyo, or a tourist from China. London was a place, or a student from, from France or states, London was a place that you wanted to be, and had, almost had, had to come to. Uh, and that's brought huge pressures on the city, I think also many um, great uh, benefits, but it's some of those sort of tensions around London's nature as a global city that we want to explore tonight. What's that done to our identity and what's that done to the built form of London? So, the way the evening is going to work is uh, each of our panelists is going to give a short presentation and, uh, and talk about their take on how globalization has affected London and the, the, the winners and losers uh, with reference to one slide. We'll then have a, a brief conversation amongst ourselves and then there'll be plenty of opportunity for us to have a conversation as a, as a room. So I'm just going to introduce my, uh, the, the, the panelists and then we'll get onto it. But just to reiterate, do I left my phone at home so I can't tweet, a tweet for me. Do, 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 do tweet because people are following this. Um, So uh, we've got Charles Samora Smith, and Charles, as you will know, is uh, chief executive of the Royal uh, Academy and before that was director of the National Portrait Gallery and the National Gallery and has a a new book out on East Londoner. He's a great chronicler and photographer of London. Uh, Fran Tonkins, who's a professor of sociology at the LSE, uh, writes about cities, social capital, citizenship and brings uh, an academic depth and rigour that the rest of the panellists so conspicuously lack. Um, ben Judah is a journalist. No, ben Judah has uh, written a, a, a hugely um, acclaimed and uh, a really, I think, challenging book about London called This is London, um, with a particular focus on, I suppose, some of the sort of darker sides of the capital, things that we don't uh, um, know enough about very often. And finally, Ron Moore, uh, uh, architectural uh, critic for the Observer, uh, an author of numerous books on on architecture and most recently, Slow Burn City, which is a sort of um, uh, raises a sort of series of concerns about the development of London and certainly my favourite architectural critic. So, a really, really good panellist. I'm not going to take up any more of their time. I want to hear what they're, they're going to say. I think we're starting with um, let me get the order right, we're starting with, with with Ben.
3: Well, thank you so much for coming this evening to to hear us all talk about London. Just to begin, I thought I'd start by telling you about what takes place in this picture, which is another planet very, very close by. So this picture doesn't take place in the streets of Delhi. It doesn't take place in the, the streets of uh, Bucharest. This is in the tunnels under High Park Corner, which is sort of just about a, a kilometer away. It would take you sort of 15, 20 minutes uh, to walk there from here. The people in the, the image, these are Roma or, as then commonly known, kind of gypsy beggars who've just arrived from Romania as they bed down for, for the night in these tunnels. And when I started writing my book, This is, uh, this is London, I, I wanted to try and show the city from the point of view of the people we never hear from. So what I want to talk about is how, how they see London and how when you start to see London through their eyes, you realize how almost impossible it is to talk about one London or one Olympic city or all in it together beyond sort of branding or slogans or sort of uh, very, very distant sociological uh, analysis. So these three three people, they're part of a group of about 25. They arrived a few days uh, earlier from Romania. They took a bus uh, straight from Bucharest, cost them about 50 pounds each. And they landed at Victoria Coast Station, sort of confused, looking from, from where to go. And then they were ushered all the way to the tunnels under Hyde Park Corner by the debt master, by the beggar king, as uh, they would call him. They fall into debt in Romania. The crops have failed. And this is their last chance. Their last chance to, to try and make some money to feed their families is to come borrow money from these, uh, these sort of uh, these beggar pimps, come out here and then try and desperately to make the money back on this terrifying uh, level of interest. So I spent some time living with them and sleeping with them and being in the tunnel with them. And the city that you see through their eyes is uh, a terrifying, terrifying place. And uh, a lawless place a place that's incredibly uh, unforgiving. So as they're about to fall asleep, these are the things that are running through their mind. They're terrified of the Polish attack, how every evening they hear from other beggars that drunk Polish builders are coming off the building site with a can of Tuskegee in hand and are going to give give them a couple of kicks in their head because that's what they do back in in Eastern Europe, this sort of common... A lot of these guys have been part of far-right gangs, they're saying. So they're frightened of the Polish attack. So it usually takes place relatively early in the evening. They're also frightened of the Arab attack. And they say that there are coked-up guys coming down from kind of Mayfair uh, who rush through the tunnel, maybe coming out of some club, who are going to come and just start sort of uh, beating them up. What, what kind of generosity do they see? They say that the only people who are really generous in London are black men. And I ask, sort of, well, why is that? And they go, well, maybe they know what it's like to be poor. And they say that white men are notorious amongst the beggar community for not giving, not giving any money. And who, is the, who are the most aggressive? Who kind of yells? And they say that the people who yell are posh English women on the arms of men late at night. I start yelling at them sort of like uh, very, very aggressively. And I ask sort of why. And they were going, oh, well, we think they're very stressed all day and they feel the subject of violence and then when they're with their men, they can sort of release a bit on us as they walk home. So as I sort of slept there for a, for a few nights with them, uh, we got into sort of talks about kind of London and, and where we were. And they kept on asking me, like, again and again, why will the English not, forg- not forgive us for having sided with Hitler in World War II? Why are they, will they not forgive the Romanians? Is that, is that why they're, they're yelling at us, like gypsy scum go home. Why will they not why were they not let that go? They were fascinated and obsessed about the Queen. And they kept on like trying to peek over to sort of look into the, the look into the Queen's gardens. And they were fascinated about like how much control the Queen had over over London. And they kept on asking me like, was the Queen like Putin? Did she, like, control the whole system? Why was the Queen, like, allowing this? And they kept on asking me if there was some way they could work with the Queen's horses, because they were saying that they were watching the horses go by, and they were very badly shooed, and they were saying that they could do a... Uh, they were saying that they could do a much, uh, much better job. Now, these people, once you're there kind of sleeping with them, and you wake up in the morning, you start to see the routine going past, and there are two very sort of uh, very painful parts of that routine to watch. One is when the, uh, the debt slaver comes, flicks his finger, and gets them all to tip in the change, leaving them with nothing. And the other is when they form these little prayer circles at dawn. They're very religious, they're very pious people. They carry little Bibles in their pockets. When you ask them to kind of explain their own lives or the world they see around them, they explain them with Bible stories, which are the ones they know best. When you see them at, at dawn as they pack up the... The bags and they roll it up and it smells of sort of piss and puke and there are they they gather into little circles to pray. One of the things that frightens them the most and they're very unnerved about in London is the the congregation of sort of of uh, spice addicts and smack addicts that come to these tunnels often to die and they're completely terrified of them, like going, what happened to these English? How have they ended up in this? this situation? Did they used to be rich men? How have they fallen on such a, into such a, a situation? Now, what do they think of the kind of that, the sugar cake mansions? What do they think they walk past the, the Royal Academy? You might have seen one of them outside, by the tube station, trying to get a, a pound or two. When I told them like, how much these properties were worth, they couldn't believe it. They were physically hurt when I told them how much uh, a brick was worth in one of these properties uh, around. But one of the most interesting things is they don't see this as an English place. They talk about the streets of the Arabs, and they talk about the streets of the Russians, and they talk about the streets of the French if you go down towards South Kensington. And they say that in the villages in Romania where they're shuffling and out of, people say, go to London and make your... You, you can make money begging in the streets of the Arabs and in the streets of the Russians and the French. When you ask about the English, really the only English thing they sort of see around them are people coming in and out of the tube who sort of yell at them, see them as drunks, see this sort of very drunken London, or is this sort of image of the Queen, this sort of mystery sort of holding, holding it all together in their minds. So that's London through, through, through their eyes.
2: Brilliant. And on time as well. Uh, that's, that, that's excellent. Uh, lots of food for thought there. Fran. Um,
4: thank you, Ben. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening. Prior to our discussion this evening, Gonzalo sent around a few questions that he thought might um, stir our thinking on the matters of, of London as a global city. And as I've spent the last couple of months telling all my undergraduates that the first thing they have to do when they enter the exam hall is to answer the question. I have been um, (laughs) fairly conscientious in in trying to think about and engage with at least some of those questions of identity and architecture which Gonzalo put to us. And I must say, uh, I am a sociologist, full disclosure, and I'm rather an old-fashioned sociologist (laughs) as well, in the sense that I have an allergy to ascribing notions of identity to abstract entities like a city Um, people i think can develop identities maybe even groups of people can form identities through through shared systems of meaning but the idea of a city having an identity is one that doesn't sit very easily with me at least analytically Um, it's something i'd prefer to leave to the city boosters and the city marketers and uh, the politicians having said that even though i am someone with a professional obligation to put easy conceptions of identity into question. Nonetheless, both as a social analyst and also as um, a citizen of London, as someone who who, um, is myself an immigrant to this city and this country, I must say that London not uniquely, but I think very distinctively amongst the cities that I know, resonates very strongly in terms of, of London having an identity. Now, I'm sure if we were doing this in Manchester or Glasgow, we'd, we'd be, maybe we'd be saying similar things, but um, the notion of London as, as a city that people identify with, that they identify themselves with, I would never think of myself as English, um, but I would certainly think of myself as a Londoner. Um, and London seems to permit that. It accommodates those kinds of belongings for people who have been here a long time all their lives and people who have been there, like, here like me half their lives and people who, like my, many of my students, have been here you know, for, for six months or so. I don't think that an urban identity is something that can be crafted or engineered very easily, although clearly it can be capitalized on. And there are various kinds of actors and agencies who try to ride that particular tiger for various ends, political ends, promotional ends, um, speculatively ends, and so on. How I think that relates to an architectural language in the city is a really difficult question, actually. That was, um, uh, and I'm, I'm not an architect. Um, I think, and one of the questions that Gonzalo said to us is, is there anything distinctive about the architectural language of London as a global city if we compare it to other global cities like New York, Dubai, Shanghai, uh, which is an interesting collection of comparable cities. And my own response to that would be no, there's nothing particularly to my eye, and I'm conscious that others who will speak after me, including many of you on the in the floor, um, will take a, a more expert and a quite different view on this. But I find it difficult to distinguish the high-end architecture of London um, that we see developing to the east and and the south in particular, and also along the river to the west, I find it difficult to see that as distinctive from what you see happening in the global centres of of Moscow, or the Middle East, or the Far East, um, or other parts of of the older world, if you will. However, London, of course, has a very rich architectural language uh, deriving from its history as a global city. And much of what I see as characteristic of London in, in morphological um, terms really does relate to its its hundreds of year-old history as, as what we would now call, in the language of the late 20th, early 21st century, a global city. And part of the, the distinctiveness of the architectural language in London, I think, uh, depends on how well we manage that balance between um, reinterpreting and maintaining the established fabric of the city and and integrating it with an emerging fabric at the high end of town, as it were. And in thinking about London in the 17th, 18th, 19th century as a global city, of course, we are immediately raising the question of how far, when we talk about globalization, we're actually talking about imperialism or neo-imperialism or capitalism or neoliberal capitalism, as my students, I'm sure, would call it. That global, we always need to ask what we're actually talking about when we're talking about something being global. It may be that there are other more proximate and more critical terms that we might want to use. Um, I want to turn quickly to the image that I've selected. It's an image that I've written about, a project that I've written about before. So apologies, and many of you will know it in any case, but apologies to anyone who might have read what I have to say. Um, already about this. It's um, an interim use on a development site next to East Croydon Station but with about a million square feet of of commercial development going in um, and and now currently on site. And this was an urban design intervention that was undertaken by Moff Art and Architecture. Um, They installed two cricket pitches on the site. And as I said, many of you will know this project, but uh, Liza Fior of, of Muff, um joked that they, when uh, Foster and Partners, who are the initial architect for the larger development, were removed from um, the job, the um, client forgot to sack the smaller practice that was doing the landscape work um, alongside them, and so they remained on site for a while, and this is what they did as a temporary use. Um, while the the site was laying fallow and um, various investors were trying to get their shit together and get the money going after the the global financial crisis. Um, And they did something which was very much attuned to another part of the local condition in Croydon, which is the presence of the UK border agency. And uh, they laid out these cricket pitches, which were used by various local groups, but also was open to use by um, and a more recent local population, which was largely comprised of young Afghani men who had to make regular trips to the UKBA offices and uh, were lovers of cricket and used it. Um, and there were two points that I wanted to raise on the basis of this image. One of them has to do with the issue of architecture and design. And uh, I think this is something that, that um, Ben might say more about in our discussion, but the way in which designers in London are able to work around and between these kinds of uh, more speculative architectural forms and more massive architectural forms with really big, very hot money coming into spaces, but not always coming in immediately or on time. And there is, of course, a, a debate to be had around the forms of cooptation and compromise that that represents. But the, the um, tactics of design that can um, be, space can be made for in between some of the um, the big end of town architecture. The second point I wanted to make was about the nature of London as a global city, because I think often when we talk about globalisation, um, we think that this is something that has to do with capital flows, that has to do with movements um, of wealth and information, and has to do with the movements of high-end service workers Um, that is globalization is something that the rich have while the poor have immigration and Ben has um, spoken about this already and that sort of dual track notion of London as a global city I think is very very crucial to its current identity and the challenge that that identity faces now it's dangerous of course to simply think about London as consisting of people who are very rich and people who are very poor, both of whom may, of course, be very transient and very temporary in the city. And I'm conscious of the fact that that's an error I myself have just stepped into because most people, I would claim, in London live in London as a very ordinary global city, neither at the high end of town or at the sharpest end of the kinds of urban precarity that we find in a global city. Um, To conclude, the, the last question was to ask us, about um, the threats to the identity of London in the face of globalisation, and in particular the threat to London's identity um, in respect of of permanent transition. Um, I think permanent transition may be London's identity and certainly doesn't constitute any kind of threat to it. I'm struck by Ben's black and white reminiscences of his youth. Because to a significant degree, it's quite remarkable the respects in which London doesn't change, even while it changes so very, very quickly and so rapidly, such that people who haven't lived here for many years, people who have visited here and no longer live here, um, people who view London through a very mediated lens have this conception of a city, uh, which we've seen, of course, come together very powerfully in the last couple of days.
2: Excellent, thank you very much. And that's actually a good reminder that that I I know this evening, if I hadn't been here, I would have been um, at the vigil that the mayor is holding um, just about now outside uh, City Hall. Um, So uh, uh, we must remember um, that certainly, I suppose, is a a downside of globalization, um, uh, but also um, uh, an upside. Uh, Charles.
0: Uh, Yes, well, if I can have my image. At this point, I should freely confess that both Rowan and I have selected nearly identical images. Um, I think not surprisingly, because his is from a different angle, but but it's essentially of the same view of uh, St. George's Tower. I, I found myself walking across Hungerford Bridge one evening and uh, looking west, uh, upriver, past the Houses of Parliament, which you can just about see, Millbank Tower, which I think is about to be taken down, and seeing this image of the new global city described by Boris Johnson, who, of course, has done a great deal to contribute to it, as Dubai on Thames. And uh, I had submitted this image before John Lanchester did, I think, a very good... uh, article in either last week or the week before's London Review of Books about, he calls it Victoria to Vauxhall, he's a resident of Vauxhall, which I'm not, about the problems of this development, that it is, I think, a symptom of one aspect of globalisation which I'm afraid I don't like or approve of, uh, which is this very bland international architecture which could be anywhere it's kind of modeled on Hong Kong. I think the developers are, are from Hong Kong. Uh, I don't know who the architects are. They're not, <laughs> they're not <laughs> I'm sure we do know people in the audience will know who they're about. <laughs> but I, 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 as a Londoner, you know, they're not familiar names of the architectural circuit. And the, 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 the big kind of complex one was twice voted the worst building in London by building design. Um, so, so the view is obviously widely shared in the architectural community. and I mean, Ben, I think, quite rightly said, and I share it, the view that London over the last 20 years has been exciting and interesting and complex and with a great deal to commend it. But this aspect of it, which is the sort of pure aspect of big blocks being built for people who are just using them as uh, the. Uh, Boris also is good, good at phrase making, <laughs> although he hasn't done anything to prevent it happening. Safety deposit boxes <laughs> in the sky is what he described them as. Uh, I, I think is very unpleasant, and I think we should do everything we can to resist it. I wanted to compare it with the experience which Ben mentioned. I've just a month ago. In fact, the first one in the series was based around East London. I wrote a book which is based on my experience of East London over the last 30 years where I've lived. And I'm basically rather pro it. Much of the literature of East London by people like Ian Sinclair and Patrick Wright has been rather negative about what's happened in East London. But I'm pro it. Part of it is, frankly, because it's not like this. It's not big developments. It's been fairly organic. It's been fairly respectful of the existing historic fabric. I mean, I am at the moment worried about the fact that there are two big kind of heritage issues in the neighborhood. One is Robin Hood Gardens, which has been a heritage issue for the last 15 years. Weirdly, it was condemned, I think in 2005, It's still there, but it is still apparently about to be demolished. And during that 15-year period, it's actually become, I think, much more valuable and much more precious because it's by major architects and it's a significant building. And the other one I've got, without necessarily intending to, involved with is the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, which is a surviving, it's said to be, I think, either 14th or 15th century Bell Foundry. It's been in operation in Whitechapel very continuously. Interestingly, when it was going to move in the early 1970s, um, the the then GLC made incredibly strenuous efforts to preserve it because it saw it as important to, as a symbol of the continuity of old working practices. But interestingly now, uh, the owners they're in their 70s, so late, late 60s or early 70s, they've been offered a huge amount of money. I'm sure it was an incentive for the amount of money. Nobody knows quite how much it was. Land around there is very valuable, and we're now absolutely powerless to do anything about it. So, my first point <coughs> is this, uh, the, the, the desirability of reusing um, surviving historic architecture, and a lot of my book is looking at that. The, the second point is I think all of us probably will be as much about social aspects as about architectural. I mean, East London benefits from a surviving, uh, s- still quite strong, not as strong as it used to be, working class community. I like Benham not nostalgic for East London as it was when we first arrived because it was quite rough and, and, frankly, sometimes a bit dangerous. And we lived by the churchyard of St. Dan's Lamb House, and most Saturday nights there would be some act of terrible violence in the churchyard, and I'm I'm frankly not nostalgic for that. But there is a sense of an existing, settled and established community. The the third thing which I think people underestimate and don't think about is the amount of government investment there's been in East London in different ways. People were very hostile to the London, London Docklands Development Corporation when it was set up, but frankly it put a huge amount of money in transport uh, to the benefit of the area. We've also benefited greatly, and again, I I think we underestimate the benefits of the Millennium Commission, which was much criticised for the Dome, but actually it did Marlene Park. Heritage Lottery Fund did Victoria Park. This kind of... um, People think of the London Docklands Development Corporation as if it was a pure free market thing, but it involved a great deal of government investment in, I think, quite in retrospect, intelligent way. It helped attract um, Canary Wharf. I will say at this stage, because I was reminded it when Ben was talking about the change in the early 90s, I often remember going to Toronto and being involved in a discussion with prominent Canadian people involved in government policy and town planning and At that stage, they all looked to France as the best model of change and they were very critical of Britain, thinking Britain was incredibly conservative and very backward. And uh, it's change. (laughs) Um, the, The next thing, on Friday I was in Berlin, I was very struck by how much, everything I'm saying is completely obvious, but it's often ignored how much of the character of a neighborhood is formed by independent shops. In East London, again, the Mm. character of the neighborhoods and the pleasures of living there are from variety of shops, not just big chains. There's been a battle recently over the changes in business rates in Spitalfields. I think that will reduce the pleasures of the neighborhood parks. And uh, essentially, What what, what I'm interested in is the comparison of this, which I don't really look forward to at all, if it's the model of future urban change, and the neighbourhood where I live, where I think there's a lot of relatively unplanned, organic, unsystematic, but beneficial change. And before I finish, till I came to the event three weeks ago, I thought, I hadn't really had to think about if there's anything one can do about it. But I sort of realised there was a sense in the audience that you can't do anything about it. But actually I'm not convinced about that because there's the mayor's office. After all, it was Ken Livingstone who changed the policy on towers. It was Boris Johnson who repeatedly called in schemes... Um, he called in Norton Folgate, which had been rejected by the local planning officers and then gave it permission. If, If the mayor has those powers, which they have, they can be used, and I think we should put pressure on the mayor's office to make sure they're used in good ways rather than bad ways. The second thing I find baffling, since this is all about the idea of foreign people buying properties for investment purposes, off plan in Asia. I do not understand why there aren't ways of reducing, when when, when there's such a need for affordable housing and we're constructing so much housing at such vast expense, I do not see why something can't be done about it. And I I think we should think of ways uh, that we could do something about it. And finally, this issue, again, it's to do with the politics of planning and the way things operate. We've just introduced, the government has just introduced a high business rate on independent shops. I think there should be public pressure
2: to get the government to change it. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure we can do things about these things, and I'm absolutely sure we can.
5: Run. Right, I'll,
2: I'll have my slightly <laughs> different image.
5: There we are. I mean, the the first thing I like about this image is I always wondered where the architects got their idea from for those funny-shaped roofs and the cylindrical tower. And you can clearly see the cylindrical tower is coming from this kind of feeding device and the uh, the, the roofs are the ears of the goats. So it's a contextual uh, piece of architecture. So that's a relief. Um, uh, But the other thing that interests me about this image is it shows what I talk about in my book as the sort of three main forces that shape, well, any city, but but London um, in particular. And I mean, London, there's an idea of London that it's a city of trade, a city of business that is always business-led. And it certainly is a a trading city, but that tends to overlook the the contribution that both communal activities have, have, Made and also state action. And here we see the three players. We have the private sector on the left, we have the government in the form of MI6 on the right, and then in the foreground we have a little city farm which grew out of um, that terrible time in the 1970s that Ben was talking about when there were bits of odd bits of land that people didn't know what to do with and people took little local initiatives and um, created things like farms which Uh, was one of the more positive aspects of that that period. And then you have a park. um, This is actually the site of the famous Vauxhall Gardens that then got built on, then got bombed, then got cleared, and they put a a very ordinary kind of piece of grass there. Um, But nonetheless, it's a a public asset. So you see these, these three elements. They're in a rather kind of undigested, uncomfortable relationship to each other. Um, there's clearly global aspects. Um, the I mean MI six I guess is a global organisation. Um, the <laughs> as you know the, the flats in the tower are mostly going to overseas buyers. The architects are actually British. They're Broadway Malian, Seems who Owen Hatherley memorably described as international purveyors of shit. <laughs>
1: um,
5: <laughs> so they're an international. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then for good measure, we have the famous railway arches, where all sorts of things happen. Um, well, I was going to say the weekend, but all the time. Um, and clearly, London is going through a period of, of huge change. Um, yeah, this will be one of the periods that people look back on and say, a lot of things happened in London then. Um, the population is bigger than ever. Um, in the mid-'80s, it's around 6.7 million. It's projected to go to 10 million in by sort of 2031. So that's an increase of 50% in a period of 30, what is it, 45 years, um, generation and a half. That, that's huge, and that's all being done without the city being allowed to expand sideways because it has a green belt. So it all has to happen within the existing fabric. There's incredible pressures of migration that Ben talks about. Um, And with these different populations, you have different understandings of what the city is. Um, For the sort of established population of London, um, people who were born here, every time a tower goes up, that is a sort of major change to the landscape. That's changes something familiar to you. For people who've just arrived, they don't have that perception. They might see the towers as aspirational and exciting or they might just take it as just part of the, the backdrop and be relatively indifferent to it. Um, and it is creating new forms and typologies, or generate different versions of, of architectural forms that um, haven't quite happened in the same way before. So you know, the big tower is not a wholly new form, but it's certainly kept having a new kind of presence Um, in in the city. And that's not, in in itself, a bad thing. Uh, London is a huge mixture of different kinds of architecture. There might be a sort of generic type that's considered, particularly London, which is the the terrace, the the street house with a garden. Um, But if you look around, there's very, very many different ways of doing a street, a house, a building. Um, In the 1930s they invented the semi-detached and that created a vast swathe of London. Uh, Post-war they created various forms of council housing, which is also now a very big part of the fabric of of London. Um, So it's in the nature of the city to make leaps in scale to have a different kind of building from what's gone before. Um, So I think if you're saying what is London, it's not really about the look It's more about the sort of attitudes behind it. Um, And I think London, at its best, in its fabric and socially, is about availability and openness, about the the idea that anybody can sort of find their niche in the city and make a life. Um, It's about a certain kind of looseness, responsiveness to new challenges. Um, And it's about inventiveness. It's about finding ways of building and shaping the city in response to new challenges. And if you look at the history of London, what you actually see is a kind of series of crises precipitated by the success, by commercial success, by growth, um, by increase in population, which then manifest themselves as crises of public health or um, the Great Fire... Uh, smog bad housing to which very slowly but eventually a, an inventive solution is found like Basil jet sewage system like the invention of council housing clean air acts um, the green belts uh, the London Building Acts that followed the great fire so there's there's actually an incredible tradition of innovation and invention that is led usually by government and sometimes as a result of, well, often as a result of kind of popular uh, social pressure, but it's not all done by the private sector. I think we're getting to that moment now, um, where there has to be a different kind, a different order of response to, to the sort of pressures the city is facing, unless there's a kind of grand deflation as a result of Brexit and God knows what. Um, in which case we'll have a different set of challenges. Um, in relation to tall buildings, I think it's, it's not that difficult in a way um, with a little bit more will. I think it's a question of just doing it better. It's not that difficult to say this is a good place to put tall buildings and this is not. There are, in fact, some policies of that kind already. They just need to be more descriptive and, and to say more. Um, and I think we should just do it better. I mean, for a sort of so-called world city, which is a phrase that brings me out in the hives, by the way, but anyway, you know, to have this incredible mediocre quality of, of tall building, which, which as Fran said, really could be in many other cities in the world, is not good enough.
2: Um, they're, they're both Broadway Malian, aren't they?
5: Yes, yeah. Uh, the little, yeah, that's right. But of course, the the big issue is is housing, is people living in beds and sheds. The people, Ben writes about um, 20 people to a two-story house in Newham. Um, It is people approaching middle age um, in their doing professional jobs who can't get a decent place to live. with all the impacts that has on their relationships and family life, and so on. Uh, and with that goes this kind of disaggregation of the city. If the strength of London has been that different kinds of people can live close to each other and share the same places, that is increasingly under, under pressure from the housing market, from housing values. Um, and I think we need that, that sort of great attitude that was in the past of, of, of really going for it. And without going into the details, I think we have to look at every tool in the books in the box. It's densifying suburbs. Um, it is a state renewal, a very controversial subject, but it can be done very badly or it can be done well. Uh, I don't think the green belt should be excluded from the conversation. Uh, sometimes brownfield sites, though they are tending to be Uh, less and less available for development, Um, sometimes tall buildings. There just has to be a different kind of attitude that says this is really an unprecedented situation and we can't just sort of fiddle around the the edges, which which is what really has been going on uh, until now. Um, And I think it needs a more active role by the state, both in planning and in actually building housing, because the, the idea has been that the market will provide, and the market palpably does not provide by itself.
2: Brilliant. Thank you very much. for extraordinarily uh, rich contributions. And I know we'll come back to the question of the sort of stay and, 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 and leadership and the sort of leadership we need in London. But I want to begin by talking about this question of identity and, and Fran's point, which is that actually people do think of themselves, uh, I think, Perhaps increasingly so as, as Londoners and and, and a, a city apart I mean, isn 't it the case that actually one of the sort of characteristics of London was that it, it sort of didn 't have a particularly strong or, or articulate sense of identity I mean, it certainly didn 't have any of the sort of anthems the songs that, that, that one thinks of uh, you know in the case of New York there was always this thing that people talked about London being a sort of city um, of, of, of villages and that does seem to me to have, to, to, to have changed. Uh, and the way, one of the ways in which it was changed, actually, is that the city's come to identify uh, and take a sort of pride in its cosmopolitanism. Um, and I think we've done something which I, I think is quite extraordinary in London, which is yeah, there have been, of course, there have been migrant cities before, and New York was a, is a migrant city. But what London's done in the last 20 or 30 years is move from being a, a sort of city of natives to being a city of, of migrants. And it's done it. I think, um, very well, can, can uh, I so, yes, I mean, I mean, I meant to be yet for you, particularly sort of the, you know, the, the sort of things that you were describing in, in, in the, in the, the, the people you were living with actually feel very vulnerable. It's not the sort of cohesive place that I like to think it is.
3: Uh, no, I don't think it is at all, but just to speak like kind of sociologically, some people in this room might have been born in the 1930s. If you came to London in the 1930s, look at the data, less than 3% of the population were born abroad. Today, in London, you have almost 40% of the population that's been born abroad. If you go to London in the 1930s, you look at its racial composition, you're looking at a city that's pretty much 95% white British. That 5% there is white Irish, a little bit of Jewish. Tiny, tiny amounts of imperial kind of migrants really could be measured in the thousands. If you look at when the queen was crowned, you look about 1953, look at the racial composition of the country, you're looking at there being around 100,000 non-white people in the country, mostly located in London. Today, you're looking at 12% of the population being non-white. You're looking in London, you're in a completely different situation. You're looking in London today, it's a city where you have the white British population, which are a minority. Now, that change has mostly taken place over the last 30 years, incredibly dramatic change, which has been lived by those that are not in the upper middle class. Now, in the upper middle class, you have not, more or less live through dramatic racial change in the social institutions which they control and enjoy. So if you look at the institutions of high society, if you look at upper-middle-class neighbourhoods, if you look at upper-middle-class schools, if you look at private schools, there's been very, very limited ethnic or racial change. Maybe a few kind of well-to-do Asian families, well-to-do Jewish families, few French families, that's not the same thing. If you look at the neighbourhoods around, if you look at what's happened to London's Lower middle class, London's working class, unprecedented levels of ethnic change. Now, if, you were, if we were going to go to Barking, if we were going to go to Ilford, if we were going to go to um, if we were going to go to Wembley, you're looking at areas going from being, in the last 20 years, around 75% white British, to now being in the, you know, percentages of like 20, 15%. These people have been moving out. You have uh, white flights. Uh, with a very, very high concentrations of people moving into Essex, moving into Kent, moving into sort of areas sort of further west outside of the city, and you have in these areas a story of resentment. People feel that they were pushed out. They didn't recognise the city. They had a community. The community vanished because of uncontrolled mass immigration. A really big contributor to the dramatic political events in this country. Now you can say. One of the things I find quite, quite annoying about the debate about London is you can be pro-immigration. You can think immigration makes Britain stronger, makes London thrive, or you can be anti-immigration. What I found is a debate which just sort of like ignores it and ignores the dramatic ethnic change that's happening uh, in London and sort of papers over it with sort of slogans, uh, sort of Olympic slogans, most of which were invented by Blair and then weaponised by, by Boris, Now, that's one kind of story which I think we need to deal with. The other story, which is, if you look at all those towers, there's one thing which I don't think we think about enough, and I'm suddenly going to become quite technical here, is how the mass production of anonymous companies is what is reshaping London. Now, when we think of a company or a corporation, we think... Oh, like a company, like Pret-a-Manger, or a company like, you know, sort of a a mechanic. But actually a company is just a piece of paper, whereas 20, 30 years ago you had to go to a lawyer, it was quite difficult to set it up. Today, anyone all over the world can set up a company in 15 minutes and they can do it anonymously. And you can set up a company, you can call it, you know, architecture program, nobody needs to know who, who, what's there and you can just park your money in it. Now the amount of these companies which are being produced, these fake companies, is extraordinary. Just in the United States, every year, you've got two million of them. These fake companies, these shell companies, what they really are, it's basically secrecy codes. Holding companies, top of holding company, on top of holding company, on top of holding company. these then whoo, come in and buy property. So it's not the property, it's not the buildings, which is the problem. It's that these secrecy devices can buy them. Now, who wants to do things in secret? Well, obviously. Criminals, obviously kleptocrats, obviously money launderers. So these secrecy devices mean that luxury real estate, not just in London, but also in the United States, also in Miami, also in the south of France, also in Paris, has become a form of legalized money laundering. So, all across the kind of former sort of socialist world, you've got these kleptocratic regimes thieving from their population. That's their modus operandi. They're then putting this money into these anonymous shell companies, and then buying property on a massive scale. How big's the scale? Well, the Treasury estimates that 3% of British GDP is money laundering. A lot. Similar in the United States, one. 3% of US GDP is, is money laundering. Now, that does kind of... If one was going to look at what the scale of London, what that's doing, we have in London, you have about 40,000 properties. No clue who owns them. No clue. One of the consequences of this election is that Theresa May is going to be able to hack into my encryptions, read all my WhatsApps, see everything I send to my kind of friends and family. But, OK, fine, maybe I'll have to allow that in order that there to be less terrorism. But to know who owns that building... Oh, sorry. So you've got 50,000 properties, no idea who owns them. But we do know, according to the police, that when we have these very, very rare cases when you bust money laundering through property, that they all use the same scheme, which is corrupt money comes in to a fake company, a secrecy device, which then buys property. Now, how are are we we in this situation where that, that is possible? Well, it's because of the power in the UK and in the US of the real estate lobby and of the legal profession and of the company incorporation business. And in the US of states like Delaware, and in Britain of sort of like fake colonial territories, which are really financial sort of enterprises, like uh, the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands, which swoop in every opportunity and block in the committee stages, legislation to do anything about them. So are there, how can you sort of deal with this, with this sort of terrifying situation where, you know, who owns the properties of London, it's just disappearing. The names are vanishing, you have a, the, the sort of lights out at night. Well, I think you need... You know, it's really quite simple. If you wanted to be kind of conservative, if you wanted to come at it from that sort of angle, you could say you can't buy property anonymously through a shell company. You have to buy property in the way that anybody else, if you could possibly afford it, would, which is sort of conventionally go through, here's my bank statement, here's, my, here's the sort of iris colour of my mother, here's sort of uh, this, that or the other. Or, if you wanted to be more radical, you could say that... You could only buy property if you were a British taxpayer, so that you couldn't buy property if you were, uh, if your company or if you were an entity sort of based abroad. So I think there are loads of ways you can really get to grips uh, with this problem, but I think it requires a new kind of thinking from people who are on the left. People who are on the left are very worried about identity issues, sure, okay, very important, really, really important. I think they're important. They're very worried about, you know, is Thomas the chapter tank engine? Is he red or not? Is he nationalised or not? And I don't think there's enough level of education about this deadly complex of the mass production of fake companies and what those do and how those allow money to move. The transformation of uh, offshore finance and the transformation of real estate into, uh, into laundered money. So one final point I'm going to make here, which is about the poor and cities. In the 19th century, the poor, there, you know, most cities have never really worked. Most cities have, have always been a bit, bit rubbish. Most towns have always been a bit rubbish. And in the 19th century, in the 18th century, most swathes of Britain, the economy wasn't working. It's not just now that we have swathes of Britain and France, the US, the economy's not working. So what do the poor do? Well, they would come and live, very, very cheaply, in ship parts of the cities that were working. to come into London, population booms, and people can buy or rent very cheaply. Now you've got the top end of the real estate market in London, in Paris, in New York, which is legalised money laundering, clipped into some sort of fantastical bitcoins for kleptocrats. The poor cannot come and work easily in London. In fact, they're repelled. London and New York and Paris are repelling the poor, pushing them out of the only place where they can work and pushing out their own inhabitants that can work. So I think that's a seriously destabilising factor to all major developed countries' politics right now.
2: I I think think the politics of London could could, could turn sour. I mean, let's just talk a bit about, which we're beginning to do, I suppose, the rise of inequality in London, Mm -hmm. because I mean that seems to me to be incredibly wrapped up in our housing (laughs) housing shortage um, and a way in which for people who own property they see their, 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 their wealth I mean income inequality is great in London but it's wealth inequality that's really, really uh, um, in, in, increased and we've done work at Centre for London which has sort of shown this and leading to um, huge conflicts over gentrification, this sort of resentment amongst uh, younger people, and this phenomenon, which I think is very important, which you don't understand, which is the sort of the impoverishment of, or the way in which uh, areas that were once quite affluent in outer London are becoming increasingly sort of impoverished as households that were once owner-occupied have been give, given over to, to to private renting, and where there's very very little sort of civil society in outer London to sort of support those sorts of families and and, and, and those sorts of individuals. I mean, is is, is London getting more unequal for Do you recognise that?
4: Yes, it is getting more unequal, both in terms of income inequality and in terms of um, wealth inequality. Um, There are so many things in what Ben's just said, it would be great to respond to but I I won't. I might reserve a couple of things at the end. But um, to take something out of um, the final comment that Ben made, of course, being poor in the city has never been easy. but being poor in a city can be easier than being poor in, in certain other kinds of environments precisely because of the existence of low-income areas, low-rent areas, um, uh, places where people can get a foothold, where services, amenities are, are <coughs> relatively cheaper, and where there are forms of collective consumption that you don't get um, in terms of transport, in terms of open and green space. Um, and in terms of the ways in which... I mean, we talk now about the sharing economy, but, of course, a huge aspect of everyone's economic lives is doing things for each other for free or at low cost or as favours and so on. And it's easier, um, notwithstanding the, the communitarian images of rural life uh, based around these kinds of exchanges, it's sort of easier to do that in, in dense environments where there are lots of different kinds of people with different kinds of resources, knowledges, um, availabilities and so on. The problem with inequality in a city, of course, is there's not a great deal that a city can do about it, you know, outside a national taxation framework and a national legal framework, and um, it may be a perverse irony that leaving the EU might make it easier for a British government, if it was so inclined, to um, impose the kinds of regulations around housing markets that some of us would like to see in terms of foreign ownership and absentee ownership, and uh, shell company <coughs> ownership, and so on. Um, but So my answer is going to be a bit mealy-mouthed, I think, on inequality. Because much of what can be done at the level of the city is, again, through the good offices of the municipal state, is through pr- provision of forms of collective consumption, is through um, social infrastructure, schools, mm. health uh, provision and so on. It's not going to change anybody's income levels. Only national governments really can yeah. do that. Well,
2: that's partly because um, I want to, to, to involve the other panelists. But mm. That's partly just because London is so such has such a weak form of government compared to compared to New York or, or Paris. I mean, well, you know, if
4: we we're in Moscow, we'd pay our income tax to the mayor, right? Well,
2: indeed, you know, and, we, and and all property taxes would go to go go, go to the mayor. So I mean, you know, we are. And it's part of your, your your call for public action and part of the challenge for London is actually its authorities, its leaders do not have the power that, that the mayor of New York, the mayor of Paris um, can, can take for granted. But I just want to talk about this, before we perhaps talk a bit, a bit about quality of leadership and, and, and what can be done, this issue of architectural quality and uh, urban design uh, to sort of architectural historians and architects on the panel, um, I mean, cycling around London, it just does seem to me that actually the Vauxhall Nine Elms development is, is, is the worst probably example. And actually a lot of what we do, I think is of a rather high standard um, we build no. and design much <laughs> better, much better than we do. We we we, no. uh, we think about the way buildings hit the ground. We, de- no. we... <laughs> uh,
5: well no, I think you know the last thirty years we have gone through a a phase when architecture got better and you know British architects were you know became good. Well, they always were better than was kind of given credit for. But anyway, they you know and um, you know and they were good. Policies about about density and and so on, uh, and the lottery paid for some decent bits of architecture and so on. But I think we are rapidly losing those gains because I, I think the quality of an awful lot of the the new housing that's being built now is, is is really atrocious. It's as bad as it's ever been. I mean, it's no. it's better in terms of building. You know, we have higher building regulations. We have higher thermal insulation standards and which is, shouldn't be forgotten. You know, So in those kind of ways buildings are better than they've ever been but in terms of the, the kind of spaces they make the way they sit in the city simply what they look like I don't think we're in a great time.
0: But, but Ron you implied which I'm sympathetic to the idea that London has changed through a series of paradigm shifts and mm. we're about to we ought to be about to have a paradigm shift but I didn't get a sense of what you thought the paradigm um, shift could or should be. Well, there's actually two be. kinds exactly. of
5: shifts I and mean, there's yeah. shifts in scale yeah. so if you look at the early pictures of Inigo Jones Banqueting House
0: yeah. it
5: towers over everything around it and now it's like a little bijou object Why, or if you look at Well actually Canary Wharf weirdly I, if I you mean, look up,
0: yeah. r- Piers Goff's Cascades which was 20 towers which was sort of alone yeah. in the Isle of Dogs
5: now is dwarfed by everything. So there's a shift in scale going on, but I was also talking about a shift in attitude towards how we plan and provide housing in particular. But, but, but you're saying, which is true, that
0: the ability of the mayor to do anything is weaker than in other yeah. countries, but the mayor is not without power. not without what, power. What would be your advice power. to Sadiq Khan in terms of using his powers to better public benefit? I would, Because that does feel to me a legitimate
5: question which we should all be asking. Well, to stand back slightly, yeah. um, not get too involved with what Sadiq actually is able to do, yeah. but I think if you look at, let's say, the outer suburbs, um, and a lot of people have done work that shows how you can densify the outer suburbs uh, in such a way that's really better for everyone, better for the people who are there already, better for people who might want to come and live there between between the first and the second world war London doubled in area through this suburban expansion and the population increased by 15% so that tells you how low density mm. Mm. that huge that you know half the area of London contained sort of 15% of the increase to put it crudely um, so if you look at those places and you stand back from it, you can say, well, you know, if you build... Uh, Tony Travers says if the whole of London was built at the same density of Islington, it would have 20 million homes. Sorry, it would higher 20 million people. So the sort of things government can do is it can take an area and it can have planning policies that encourage people to densify, but it makes sure that there's a... that. There's a kind of quid pro quo that enable the means that people already there benefit. Sometimes local authorities can do these things themselves. They can build things themselves. Sometimes they can use compulsory purchase orders, um, which are used by people like Tottenham Hotspur Football Club to sort of annihilate uh, areas of industrial places where people work. but but local authorities are very reluctant to use it. So, in principle, um, it has happened before. It can happen again. It happens in other countries that municipal governments take responsibility for changing areas for the better of the city. Um, The mechanisms don't really exist for doing that at the moment. But, you know, somebody's got to say if you keep saying these things long enough, then the wind can change, which is the, was the 19th century experience. I mean, something that became very clear to me writing my book was that in the 19th century, people said, spent 20 years pointing out that the Thames was full of sewage and coming up with ideas of what to do about it. Um, and then finally, something happened and, and it was fixed and it took another 20 years or so to fix it. So it doesn't happen quickly. But you don't, if, if nobody says this is a problem, these are some of the ways they might be fixed, even if we don't have the answers, then you really you don't have a hope.
2: There's, there's, there's one aspect, I suppose, of London's identity, which we haven't talked very much about, um, which does seem to me have sort of changed, which is that uh, London has emerged as one of a handful of sort of real superstar global cities. Uh, and you've seen, I, I think, the Almost urbanisation of privilege and status. Mm. I mean, you know, 50 years ago, if you were rich and lived in Britain, you aspired to be part of the aristocracy. I mean, you you know, you you bought big pile outside outside of London. I mean, there was a, a book uh, by a man, German historian called Weiner, called uh, what was it. The, um, the decline of the industrial spirit. The decline the decline of the, 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 arena, the, the, the industrial mm. spirit, which is about yeah. how what was what was what was well, doing the, in there was a, something before the decline what was doing in Britain was the fact that people made money and then they wanted to live like gentlemen and yeah. they moved out. And now status is derived and retained within London. I mean you are you know, you it's are a you, a, you are certainly
0: showing that... her cabinet to read it. I mean it's funny yeah, yeah. how there are these texts which are very influential for a short period of time and then get completed. But it wouldn't make any sense now. Completed, because, completed, no, that, no, now now the greatest status you can have in the world is to be a tr- the trustee of the world. To invest in country houses. <laughs> <laughs> but that just, just
2: make a comment on that. Um, just one, so, and, and then you know, and think about the politics of this. I will, but think about <laughs> the politics of this very quickly because you know, Brexit was a, was a vote against the metropolitan elite. And so was Trump. We're sitting in a citadel of it at the moment.
0: Ben is about to launch Uh, into another tirade. No, no, very, very quick, because I want to engage the audience.
3: Uh, just one one minute. But one of the interesting things is that if you look at the super-rich coming to live in London, they don't want to be part of the British class system, because the British class system is uncool, is fading, and it's just not appealing to them. So they're coming, buying big properties sort of around here, swanning around, and they're living transnationally, and they are not interested in integrating and in putting on the right... Jackets, because Britain is just a sort of tetchy little backwater, uh, very tetchy at the moment, and that they want to live a kind of monocle magazine global lifestyle, and I think that's, that, I think that's very interesting. That's very psycholog- Going to be very psychologically challenging to this country going forward. Right. Very good. Fran, then we're we'll going oh, to open up the audience. quick
4: word. I. I just want to take issue with some of the very dominant representations of London from without, and maybe part of our identity is in terms of those boundaries: who's on the outside telling us what we're like and how we feel ourselves to be from within. And you know, two very powerful representations of London seem, on the one hand, to be the metropolitan elite, um, and on the other hand, to to be um, the no-go areas. The um, you know the, the fact that Londoners are terrified in their own streets and. Um, public spaces and so on, neither of which capture, I think, the, the complex... real Well, certainly not the complex realities of living in a city. I believe that most places are tetchy backwaters when you hit the ground. I mean, the world is just full of t- tetchy backwaters, <laughs> and most people in London are living in it as a tetchy backwater. The idea that um, the Brexit vote was a vote... As if everyone in London is uh, white and... Uh, you know, middle class and liberal. That's just this panel. Uh, it's not the city as a whole, <laughs> um, and neither are, is, is it this. You know, I'm not liberal. <laughs> no, I have my illiberal moments as well. It must be said. Um, but these, these sort of that that high and low end of of the global city is true in part, but it, it is an incredibly um, distorted mirror to put up to a, a, a city that is is really just as mundane. Um,
6: for
2: all of those people, including uh, everyone else as well. Great. Uh, Comments and questions from the floor? I do welcome comments, but all I insist on is
6: you keep them very short. Thank you. I'm a migrant as well, and and delighted to be here. Uh, Listening to you speak, the the panel, I I almost pictured two sets of, um, uh, two tables of information. One is the beautiful things that made us be in London who we are, and it came from all of you the access, the beauty, the, the history, the, the habits, the culture. And then there's another, um, another table that has all the problems. And I'm just wondering what it would take for a panel like yourselves and others to look at all the things that made us who we are today and absorb them and then turn to the other table and say these are the challenges and how we mix the two. Because the ingenuity and the goodness and the culture that made us who we are today could be put to good use with some thoughtfulness on how we make London not have all the negative aspects that you described. I wonder whether somebody is doing that or whether that combination of skills and challenges would be helpful.
5: Uh, Vauxhall Nine Elms, I, I,
0: I live round there. And it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's quite like Docklands because there is nothing there. I mean, there is a, a disused power station. There was a, an old coal store that they knocked down. There was... Um, the market which is gradually disappearing as well. So it's interesting that when Docklands was redeveloped it became offices because that's what people wanted at the time, now Nine Elms which is very similar is becoming houses. it is becoming housing it's just becoming the wrong sort of housing and it, I'd just be interested in, in your views about you know, is that caused by these, these companies, what's, what's causing it to happen? And, you know, at on the one hand at least it's housing on the other hand, it's the wrong
1: sort. I, I would like to add also another comment, and it's how the factor of tourism is, is affecting like also the identity that we have in London. The other day I was going for a walk through the bank side and I saw all these souvenirs and magnets and how the image that we have right now of London is defined by all these landmarks that we find all over the city and how most of these landmarks are just made for the tourists who are not citizens that are actually living here. So, how you could like answer to the question of how do you think that this identity of London as a global capital is defining for or not uh, for the citizens or for the, or for the tourists that are like non-permanent
2: citizens? Right, yeah. Charles, let's perhaps take this one. Are you why that we designed for tourists and that we're every... uh, uh,
0: It's sort of very in the garden bridge? Was the bridge It's, it's very in my mind at the moment because on Friday I was in Berlin and I stayed in Mitter which I've been to over the years, recurrently from 86, when it started being colonized by artists. And I've always liked it as a neighborhood and gone to it and stayed on the edge of it between Mitte and Prenzlauer Berg. And at the conference seminar I was at, I was told that actually Berliners now hate it. because it's an emblem of the excessive gentrification and the fact that now it's too expensive for ordinary Berliners to live in. So it's this paradox that what tourists like, often people who live in a city don't like. I don't know in terms of London. I mean, I think the odd thing about tourist cities is that people who live in it, I mean, I'm speaking for myself in London, we don't, go, I don't I haven't been to the Tower of London for years. I, I, I sometimes drive down past Madame Tussauds and see people queuing up. There are sort of spots which are tourist hotspots, which are three stars in the Michelin Guide. I mean, there are six million people now going to the National Gallery, whereas in 1980, there were only like 1.5 million. So there's been this massive expansion in tourism. But, but it, it, it's in a quite confined geographical neighbourhood, and it doesn't really intersect with, with
2: the people who live here. They're putting huge pressure on those neighbourhoods. I mean, this neighbourhood in particular, I mean, once we get Crossrail uh, in 2018, I mean, you know... The, I can remember the figure
0: which gets... Could it be 350,000-year-old have been who are predicted to come out of the Hanover Square
2: exit for Bond Street. Right, right,
0: I right. mean, you know, they're worried yes. about the size of the pavements.
2: Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, the, they're talking about pedestrianising Oxford Street, I and mean, you really have yeah. no choice to pedestrianise Oxford Street, I mean, that, you know, because there's because just be so many, so, so many of us. But at this point about sort of how, how good are we in impl- using this sort of ingenuity? Hmm. Of so, sorry, I the, didn't the, the, the answer,
0: which in a way I was just interested in the question of Vauxhall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of why that question, I think it's a very legitimate thing. The answer is, of course, nobody's making the decision.
5: We get back to this fact. Well, mm, this. yeah, I mean, the, 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 well, there is. It's luxury housing, which is I not mean, really the, what the, we need. The, the, the two reasons are, one is, is there is a market for it, and that's, that's where the money is in property. And the other is, is that Boris had a particular policy of encouraging housing, as Sadiq now has. Um, But the way Boris did it, he was really just looking at the numbers, so he wasn't hugely concerned with exactly what kinds of homes were being created. He would just like to be able to say, we've given permission to this many tens of thousands of, of units. So anyone coming along asking and for you know residential planning consent with lots and lots and lots of units in it, unless likely
2: to unless we get more questions, I'm going to I'm going to make a defence of Nine Elms. So you better ask. Is there anything? What do you want to respond to? It? Yeah, what, to talk about. Yeah. just to come to
3: these. I think something that we don't talk about enough is I mean the answers to a lot of these questions lie the balance sheets of banks, and if we look at them historically. So we look at the balance sheets of banks in the 1930s. What are the big banks lending to? Big 70% of loans then, in 1930, from the big banks are going to business, lending to other businesses. Today, the big banks, 70% of what they lend to is going to housing. The then... Most of the rest of it is interbank lending, lending to other banks, leaving us with a very small amount, which is lending to business to help it grow, or what we think of as banking. So we have a system where the big banks are addicted to mortgages to giving you to giving out mortgages, which means that the entire economy gets shackled into a position where it 's forced to have low interest rates. I mean that system can continue, which gives us this horrible cycle of ever increasing property, ever increasing property prices, ever increasing amount of, of debt, and leaves us stuck in a low interest rate environment which is banned for businesses to grow. And I don't think we're going to be able to really address any of these problems to as cities unless we tackle that problem. And that problem can only come with serious education into how debt and banking actually work and through this being made a prime issue of the centre and the left and anybody that's not captured in this country by vested interests.
4: Just to come back to the first question, um, many of the things you describe, I think, are just the the downsides of living in a big city. They're not especially London-specific, the things that... problematic in the city. But it is the case when we're thinking about inequality that conventionally we've always seen inequality as being about problems of poverty. Cities are unequal because large poor populations are drawn to living in cities and that's still the case um, because of the welfare benefits of aspects of urban living and because of the, the economic opportunities that are available. But increasingly there is a recognition, including within certain levels of the political establishment, that the problem of inequality in London today, as in many other cities, is, is about the rich, um, and it's, it's having to target that level of the political economy that potentially might make a difference.
2: So what do, so what do you mean the, the problem is with the rich? In just... terms of the
4: way that inequality is being driven at the right. top end, right. um, rather than the fact that we're concentrating large poor populations, which we do. But cities can cope pretty well with supporting um, low-income populations, and London, I think, is to a significant degree still... London is a highly functioning city, you know, if we're thinking about it in global terms, compared to many, many urban environments around the world, we do okay. We now have a kind of immigration profile which is comparable to cities in the United States, and yet our history of immigration, as Ben pointed out, has been so much more rapid, um, historically speaking. And so I would want to endorse your point about the the respects in which London is functional, if not entirely successful. Um, But we have an elected mayor now whose mandate is second only to Emmanuel Macron's in Europe. You know, he has the second largest direct electoral mandate in Europe, um, and we ha- give him this incredibly powerful mandate to basically do nothing because he can't.
2: Very true. But I also, I'm also a critical of all three mayors in the, in the sense I don't really think that they have um, been as creative as they could be. Uh, you know, when I'm, when i look at the sort of Scottish government... And they just, they're, they, they, they're, they're, they're talking about progressive language, they're experimenting with things like universal But they've, they've got a budget. Yeah, they've got a budget. It's true, it's true.
7: Okay. Um, I had a quick question um, about the infrastructure of London, um, as it strikes me as something that's pretty like, pivotal in the identity of um, like the urban sphere here. You think about the London Underground and the red buses, um, and you sort of started to, <clears throat> excuse me, started to talk about it there with Crossrail coming in and the pedestrianisation of Oxford Street, and Lots of the suggestions that have come out about trying to deal with housing and how people can sort of live cohesively strikes me as also being quite dependent on it and um Rony spoke very eloquently about you know, the need to densify the suburbs but i wondered what your proposals would be also for maybe dealing with the infrastructure that would come with that and the fact that as london looks to incorporate more people and to expand it's surely going to mean that the architectural fabric of the city will depend even more heavily on how you can actually deal with moving people around mm. and obviously that in itself well, yeah. dictates the economies of the city hugely where people will you know take huge spikes in rent or in fees to be meters closer to different pivotal sort of um mm. infrastructural points there so i wondered how you thought infrastructure would link in and how you would propose alongside what you've talked about with dealing with the actual sort of buildings how the city can go about supporting people that are in those buildings and linking them together
2: um, uh, just, um, to me any, any, any more questions before I take this one, there's one more at the back there.
0: Thanks. Um, one of the issues that haven't been touched on is the role of local authorities. We talked about the GLA, but I think that um, almost London is kind of succeeding, despite all attempts by national government to kind of make it fail. And one of the reasons is that local authorities have been completely emasculated by government policy. And what you're seeing is this kind of public, public squalor of private wealth, which is not so manifest in the city centre. But if you go to any of the kind of inner, borough, inner London boroughs, you know, there's not enough money for libraries, not enough money for parks. And a combination of kind of incompetence and desperation just makes local authorities completely
7: beholden to developers and... I'm not quite sure how we overcome that, but I think this is one of the critical issues affecting London.
2: Very very well said. Question about transport, particularly, Um, perhaps starting with you. Yeah, I mean, okay. The first
5: thing to say about Crossrail—it's very easy in these kind of discussions to sort of moan about everything and say nothing ever happens. But in fact, if we'd been sitting in this room 20 or more years ago, we would have been complaining about transport
6: Mm.
5: in London and complete lack of, infrastructure, of investment in transport infrastructure. And now there has been quite a lot. a difference. Um, and it's not the biggest problem anymore. Though, of course, it's by no means perfect. Um, but, yeah, transport has a huge role to play in making the city work better, and in, that includes housing. Um, but, I, I, again, I think an opportunity is being missed. So what Crossrail is going to do is it's going to make places in outer London, like um, Forest Gate, um, Manor Park, Ilford, um, places in south London, Abbey Wood, um, Plumstead, <coughs> that are pretty low density, uh, suddenly much more accessible. And so there's good reason to Build more housing there, and also the incentive and higher values, and so on, and that will happen to some degree. But I, I, what I don't see very much of is um, our coherent attempts to do to direct that, to give that an intelligent form, to make sure that there is going to be housing, um, you know, for local people, and it's, people aren't just priced out by the increase in value. Um, it's, it's the usual thing that, that it's really left to developers without a great deal of direction. An exception to that is possibly Thamesmead, you know, which is, which is interesting, which is gonna be changed by Crossrail, where you have this enormous, not very successful 1960s kind of you know, new town within London. Um, that's been very comprehensively redeveloped and quite intelligently, as far as I can see. But so the answer is, is yes, transport is, is vital but transport and other forms of planning go together. Um, and I, I would like to see more of that opportunity being being taken than is actually the case.
2: Right, Fran and Ben, lastly, comments on, on the role of local authorities, the impact that, 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 that cuts are having and perhaps I mean, looking at your bio and all this rich work you've done on sort of civil society and public realm in London. I mean, you know, is it is it being is it being is the public realm being eroded I'm, by I'm these guys? I'm not going to get
4: into street parties. I, did. I was doing an interview once and someone said, oh, you're talking about street parties, um, which I wasn't, but I, I take it, the this is kind of the pieties of civil society. I'm not sure I can put it better than than um, our colleague here did in terms of the effects of local government and they're evident for, for any of us who live as well in the city as well as working mm-hmm. on it. But um, I wanted to underline a point that Rowan made uh, in his 10 minutes when he talked about some of the more innovative responses that local authorities, I must say, of both leftish and certainly rightward um, leaning are doing in respect of, of development, <coughs> including around housing, that um, I'm not sure that power and funding is going to come back to local government anytime soon in this city. And But local authorities are uh, unilaterally, as well as working together, now res- finding ways to work within this new system in a I was going to say they're privatizing themselves, which uh, sounds damning, but um, are, are trying to work in in more limber ways in respect of becoming developers again without being direct state providers. No, which
1: it's it,
4: it, it, and as I say, it, 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 no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Yeah.
5: I mean, but there are, you know, again, to sort of not moan. Uh, There are good examples of local authorities building new housing, and councils just weren't allowed to build any council housing at all for a long time, and now they do, and in some places
2: they're doing a good job Mm -hmm. of it. To speak very quickly to to, to your point about Crossrail, the the real missed opportunity is there will be development along Crossrail, but all the value will go to to developers and not to the public who paid for it.
3: well, a lot of what I looked at in my book, This is London, was going undercover and using kind of Eastern European languages that I speak to try and capture the, the lives of Romanian, Lithuanian, Polish, and so on migrants. And You enter into this giant migrant underworld, this giant underclass, you're finding a place where health and safety regulations actually don't really apply. Where a lot of these people are living, a lot of these people are living in what Rowan calls hidden favelas. And I went and I lived for sort of, uh, I don't know, like some weeks in these... Uh, in these DOS houses, where you'll have 20 people in two rooms, uh, people then going out, looking for work on the street corner, touting at, at touting spots. And this has been multiplying. So if you go and you stand outside any of the WICs or any of the B&Qs in outer London, you'll have groups of Eastern Europe, most almost exclusively Eastern European guys touting for work. And a lot of them are living in these DOS, ha- these DOS houses. So this, you end up in a situation where... This is feeding into aspiring homelessness in London. So what happens is someone will come, 50 quid, jump on a bus, here here I am, I'm in London, and uh, where am I going to get work? I'm going to tout on the street corner. Where am I going to live? I'm going to live in a DOS house. Uh, You have bandit construction literally employing people uh, off the street corner rampantly. Probably a lot of your houses were redone by guys picked up off the street corner. It is common practice when you're short of labour. Most builders in London... Go go to a labour agent. They have no idea where their labour comes from. It's coming from places like that. So how have we got to a situation where we've got this semi-kind of lawless uh, underbelly? Well, the answer actually comes back to the non-banalities of local government. It is when you've got a third of the budget of local government being cut. What are the things they cut? There was cut of health and safety inspectors. There was a massive cut of housing inspectors. So all of these roles that we used to have before, people just knocking on doors going, uh, have you got like 10 people in there or one? These roles have gone because they were perceived to be non-important and the big society was supposed to fill its place. So I think there's an urgent need to get those roles back in local government to try and break out of this
2: cycle. Excellent. We've come to the end of the discussion. I'm going to. Ha- um, Hannah Fred Gonzalo, in a minute, just to say that it was an immensely rich discussion. I think there was a sort of consensus across the panel that um, uh, we need a sort of different sort of leadership in London to meet the sort of challenges that this uh, fantastic city faces. Um, uh, and that, to me, is above all about all of us working together to get London government more of powers that other cities have. Uh, take for granted but it's also about being creative with the resources that we've we've got so uh, anyway do you want to say a few words Um, but I just want to thank uh, our panelists
1: Uh, thank you very much Ben for uh, moderating this exciting conversation thank you to all the speakers if you want to know more about the architecture program here at the Royal Academy just go on to our website um, www.royalacademy.org.uk slash architecture
2: (laughs) thank you very much Thank thank you